You're listening to the Propane Fitness Podcast, your ultimate resource for fat loss and muscle gain with none of the gimmicks. With your hosts, Yusuf and Johnny. Simple rules, dramatic results. You are listening to the Propane Podcast and here we are today with a man after my own heart. We are with Michael Kirk, an industrial engineer, and this is a man who I came across on his website called Efficiency is Everything. And I basically weed myself when I saw his mention of a shoehorn and how many number of hours that it saves over the year. Because um, if you have been listening to us for a while, you'll know that I am a massive fan of the shoehorn. I have a luxury shoehorn right here that was a gift for my birthday, and it's probably the best gift that I've ever received. Um, So what Michael does is he applies the principles of industrial engineering to life overall and... uh, Just his approach to this is really unique, and I think there's a lot to be learned from both your fitness perspective and also from your business. Michael, hello. Thanks for coming on. Oh, thanks for having me. So, Michael, can you tell us a bit about yourself, what you do as kind of a day job, and uh, then we can go into some of the nitty-gritty? So, uh, like you mentioned, I I run Efficiency is Everything. That's kind of my night project. Um, my day job, if you, if you want to take away any sort of efficiency, it's a really high-paying engineering job. I picked the highest-paying one, and that's actually in electrical engineering. And if there's any takeaway there, you know, maximize your revenue, um, you know, kind of by any means necessary. And I'm a big fan of following the winds of economics. Economics is pushing me towards, you know, whatever pays the most. So uh, that's kind of my day job. I got my master's in industrial engineering, and uh Kind of what, what ended up inspiring efficiency is everything. I did this process called 5S, um, and that's basically the engineering, uh, I think the Japanese way of sorting things. Um, so it just is kind of a process to cleaning up something. So anyway, I did this to our cabinet at home, and my wife is like, this is great. Like, do you have any like more of these uh, like ideas? So I started doing a bunch of this like industrial engineering to like our life at home, everything from like our groceries um, I end up writing down every single recipe we had um, and then getting the ingredients we needed to and putting them uh, by grocery aisle. And uh, this was just very beneficial. Like those kind of things, it made life easier. So it was very easy for my wife to actually enjoy this. So uh, then at one point she's like, you got to show other people this. So by the way, if you want the, those recipes, you can get them on the website for free. Uh, cool. Yeah. So we'll, we'll stick all the links for this in the, uh, in the description on the comments. Um <clears throat> There's so much in there already. Like, it sounds like your career choice was a strategic move to say, like, how can I maximize my hourly rate relative to the inputs and what are the market forces telling me that I should go into? So that's that's really cool. And then also the, the thing about splitting your recipes by grocery aisle, minimizing the amount of zigzagging around the grocery shop. Um, this is something that... So I, I wrote a piece a while ago on a kind of similar vein on semi-automating your diet. And this is about taking the, um, so you, you first split the food groups that you require based on your goal, so muscle gain or fat loss, you look at the number of carbs, protein and fat that you require, and also within those foods, generally carbs are very non-perishable and protein tends to be the most perishable type of food. So you then split the batch ordering or the bulk ordering of the perishable foods on a more frequent basis and then the non-perishable foods on a less frequent basis such that you have a automated grocery shop that triggers every month let's say um, online with the approximate amount that you would consume 
for the non-perishable foods, and then you have a more frequent one, say, weekly or every 10 days for the perishable foods, and then you can basically eat for £7 a day or about $10 um, without having to think about the kind of foods that you're eating. So um, it sounds like we're, we're thinking on the same vein there in terms of like drilling things down to the parameters that you would need to set up your diet or, in your case, your career as well. Yeah. Uh, just I want to comment on uh, your ordering process. So uh, there's kind of just mentioning there's two ways of thinking. There's that buying in bulk. And then another thing I've been taught is they call it just in time. So it's just uh, it's just in time, say, um, logistics. And the idea is you only buy what you need, uh, I guess, as often as you need it. And this reduces chance. And you were talking about perishables, like reduce chance of spoiling. Um, I mean, hopefully when you have uh, have your bulk, you, you know how much you're going to use. Um, but just another way of thinking, it saves space when you do just in time. Um, I mean, we so we buy our groceries once a week. Um, and I'm kind of curious, like, uh, so you currently do this? So I currently do this. I've actually gone one step further, which is maybe <clears throat> not what a lot of people would agree with. But this is just for like, currently I'm optimizing just for absolute time rather than price or anything else because time is my current bottleneck and so I'm just eating ready meals and because these meals are so freezable and you can just microwave them at any point it means that if I if I skip a meal or if I end up having a meal out or something I don't end up then just fucking up my whole process because they're freezable and they last for months so for me it kind of avoids the just-in-time um, some of the pitfalls of the just-in-time process as long as you have enough freezer space. Um, but I think like freezers and microwaves have just been a, a complete revolution for me. And I don't even have an oven anymore in my house um, just because it's not something that fits my, my workflow anymore. Yeah. No, we pretty much cook on the stove top. So I, I see that. Ah, uh, cool. So um, the there was an article on your website called the seven forms of waste. And I think this kind of underpins a lot of the other um, processes that you talk about. And it seems like the way that you, the, the way that you apply the industrial engineering tends to be like avoiding some of these forms of waste. Can you talk us through those? Yeah. And I think, uh, I think the, the biggest thing is looking at a lot of your problems you deal with on a daily basis or weekly basis, pretty much anything that uh, you want to make more efficient, uh, the goal is to really drive that down to a process. Um, and I'll just kind of describe how I, I picture a process. If you could list out every single step it takes from start to completion, and you get rid of the non-value-added ones, things like walking around don't really create value. But say, uh, the, the example I give is, say you're trying to get ready in the morning very quickly. Uh, what do you actually need to get done? And a lot of it will be like uh, like showering. You, you got to get clean. Um, but you don't need to wait for the water to get hot. You could be potentially doing things in this time. So I, I think as, as far as, so here's something to practice. I would say, do you, look at your morning routine. Um, if you're really ambitious, write down every single step. Because when you write down every single step, you'll, you'll start realizing uh, the waste. You can actually visualize the waste. An alternative to this uh, just go through your morning routine. See where you're waiting around. Um, that would be one way of uh, or even walking back and forth. Those are all things that don't create value. Um, so I'll, I'll kind of go into those seven forms of ways that might help visualize what those could be. So I mentioned transportation. Uh, you look at your morning routine. You might be moving clothes from room to room. You might end up walking back and forth. 
um, from room to room because you forgot something. Uh, those kind of things you could uh, even potentially error-proof. Um, uh, so going through the seven forms, so transportation, that's one of them. Inventory, so when you have lots of, say, items, say you have tons of clothes, it may be harder to make a decision on what you're going to grab. Um, motion, this is actually like the, the sort of small movements. Say you're, uh, say you're taking a shower and you wash your hair, um, and then you let the soap drain down you. I would say that's that's very efficient compared to if you uh, wash, say, your body and then you washed your hair. Um, that might not be a great example, but that's kind of an idea of what motion would be. Um, waiting, that, that kind of is exactly what it sounds like. If you're waiting for the shower to heat up, if you're waiting on someone else. Um, what I like to do with my waiting time, I, everyone pulls out their phone. Um, so I maybe I don't think waiting is that big of a deal anymore. Um, so over-processing, the way I want to describe this form of waste, it's trying too hard. So imagine you really don't need to doll yourself up that much to get to work and get paid. Uh, maybe it's worth not trying too hard. Um, or the other example I have, imagine you cook like this really fancy dinner. Uh, did you really need the fancy dinner that took you an hour and a half to make, or could you have gotten away with cooking in 15 minutes? Um, so the, okay. the over-processing thing, <clears throat> just to add to that, I think the example you gave on the website was, let's say you're cooking a fancy dinner for some guests, and you don't know that the guests, pre the guests' level of threshold or tolerance for a fancy meal is actually like 80% less than the amount of effort that you've put in. And so all the extra hour and a half of time you've spent cooking a meal doesn't impact their enjoyment of the meal. And so you were saying, like, actually you can, this is over-processing something that doesn't provide any marginal return, but has a massive marginal cost. And right. so I guess it's about finding that, that point where there are decreasing or negative, uh, or, um, or, or, yeah, decreasing or negative marginal returns on your input. Is that fair to say? Yeah, and I, I guess there's not always a way to determine without, like, really studying, like, what you actually need. Uh, anything can be really broken down into numbers, at least in my opinion. Uh, but yeah, do do what you need to do, and we can maybe we should talk about Pareto at some point. Doing uh, what is it? Twenty percent of the the work gives you eighty percent of the results. Um, you know, just kind of that that mentality. Um, I'll go through the last two. Uh, overproduction. Maybe this one's harder to visualize. The way I like say you bulk prep bulk uh, prep food, but then you get sick of the food or it expires. Um, but that one may be not as common. And then defects, think about making a mistake. Say you forgot to, here, here's one, I'll leave my bedroom and I'll be walking outside and then only to remember I need to put my belt on. So a defect in your morning routine is that maybe I left the room without double checking everything. And checklists are really good for that. Um, you're sort of jumping around, but, uh, the checklist idea, if you do not use checklists already, this will fix any problems you run into, uh, forgetting things. Um, I put one on my door, and since then I haven't forgotten my lunch or my work badge, which were two you know, huge things for me. So there's probably two benefits to a checklist. One is not forgetting anything, and obviously it's used in the medical industry and the and the airline industry, like as part of their standard protocol because of the the potential massive safety cost if if something is forgotten, you know, in a surgical theatre or in a plane takeoff. But the other thing is probably the time saving as well because if you're 
like the switching time between like doing 80% of the checklist and then being like, oh, hang on, I haven't done this bit, or oh, wait, I need to go back and get... Like, all of that switching, <clears throat> or the mental resource required to be like, oh, I need to also do this, which I may have forgotten or may not have. Or like, you... I mean, have, I'm sure everyone's like made lunch, left it on the counter, headed out of the house, and then they're five minutes down the road and they're like, bollocks, I forgot my lunch. So they go back and have, you know, all of that stuff gets saved by having a checklist too. So I think those seven forms of waste, the way that you've described those, like with such kind of real world examples, probably make, is probably already making people think like, this is stuff that I've probably got hundreds of these inefficiencies throughout the day that I'm not thinking of. Now, the reaction there is either, how do I get a handle on all of this? Or, how does this really matter at all? And I suppose we can cover the philosophical, like, why does this matter in a second? But um, for the the stuff of, how do I know that I've got a handle on it all? You've actually got a full worked example of a morning routine where you talk about the kind of coffee, shower, brushing your teeth, process that you that you described there and actually when you put it down on paper and you talk about which of these steps is value adding and which of these is not value adding which ones are done in serial which ones can be done in parallel you actually start to realize like there is so much slack in the system and if you can optimize that stuff it's it seems just pretty incredible so with the showering stuff you've got like you split it down into really the micro steps of like wake up get out of bed um get the towel take clothes off run the shower get toothbrush toothpaste on the toothbrush like all these things and you're like actually there's loads of these little steps that can be fit together and some that require a waiting time and as you said like the waiting time it almost becomes unnoticed because people by default just they get their phone out and they'll start like texting or checking the news feed but that's not a good use of time either. That's just adding dead time into your day as well. Um, kind of giving an example of how these kind of seconds can add up. So say, uh, I'll give the example of, say you need to throw something away um, four times a day. Or how about two times a day? You have to walk over to the trash can. Say it takes you five seconds to walk over to your trash can, throw something away. Then five seconds to walk back to what you're doing. You do that twice a day. So over the course of your lifetime, uh, that'll take you 100 hours. So it, it might seem like it's only five seconds, but it, when that ends up adding up, um, you know, that'll, that'll be literally hours you're spending just walking back and forth to that trash can. I so sickening. The, the takeaway there is, you know, move the trash can closer to you when you're working on uh, whatever this is. Um, so a very simple, almost obvious thing. Uh, but once you call it out, it's it's much easier to recognize sort of the waste around your life. And it really does add up. Um, I don't know. I guess I feel like I have a pretty uh, easygoing life, but I get stuff done as well. So people take the piss out of me for this, for being so obsessed with the shoehorn. Oh. And I feel like you are one of the only men that truly understands this. Um, and it's exactly what you just described. That is like, if you're spending like however many hundred hours in your life putting a shoe on like and that's unnecessarily wasted time i guess the only way to truly appreciate how uh much of a waste of of this precious short life that we have of that that is is if you let's say 
our lives weren't working as they as they were right now but instead you had like all of your activities that you spend throughout your life and they suddenly get alphabetized or and, and done in batch so then like you're born and the first hundred hours of your 70 year life is spent putting on shoes and then the second hundred hours are spent walking back and forth to the bin and then the third hundred like you would then look at that and be like whoa hang on this is a lot of time that is boring unpleasant and unnecessary by the way i find that a very interesting way to visualize it um you know very often i'll do it in just numbers but uh hearing kind of if you could live like that, have to spend a hundred hours just putting your shoes on all back to back. You'd go insane. Um, <laughs> uh, by the way, I wanted to say, so you save, uh, say it takes you 33 seconds to tie a pair of shoes with a shoehorn. We found it took about 15 seconds. So you save about double that time. So, uh, I very much applaud that. So the, the way that I kind of, I, I wrote a post about this a while ago is that it was before I saw your, um, thing and it's interesting because we both come at it from a slightly different way but actually like yeah so there's the time saved multiplied by the number of times that you put the shoes on throughout the day multiplied by the number of days in a year and then that that is in the number of like salaried man hours that you're wasting plus the like the skin on your thumb that you're scraping every time that you uh, try and put on a shoe by hand um and that's like one small example of one of the seven forms of waste that you've just described. Um, only other thing I could say about the shoes is if you go, I, I don't know how I could really do this, but slip-ons uh, being twice as efficient uh, <laughs> as the shoehorn. So the, the, I think we've probably split people down the middle here that there'll be some people like, right, they've already ordered a shoehorn on Amazon while listening to this. And the other group are probably thinking like, these two guys are opt over optimizing for something that doesn't need to be done and they're weird. Can you explain? Okay, can we talk through some of the philosophical points of this? Of um, so, I mean, I guess we've covered the total number of man hours wasted, but I think the flip side of that is that is time that, if it's saved, could be opened up to be doing something that is more fulfilling. All right. Um, I would say more fulfilling can be anything from spending more time with the family. I like just sleeping in or laying in my bed longer. That's kind of one of the, so if I, I had my 15 minute morning routine and I got that down to six minutes. So what did I end up doing with that time? I just set my alarm later. So that means I can, uh, I, I set a morning alarm and then kind of the emergency alarm and kind of during that time I can, uh, sometimes we have the kid in the room. So uh, just that extra time I can sometimes we'll wake up early. I'll read a book to him. So like, it might not seem like, you know, minutes matter, but when you're, you can finish a page of a book in a minute, uh, that'll actually add up over the course of the year. I mean, I've read hundreds of pages now, um, of books in the morning, so I, I can give some credit there. So your morning routine is six minutes. Uh, yeah. So the actual part where I'm getting dressed and ready, that'll take me six minutes. Um, the amount of time I spend in bed, well, that's a different story. <laughs> that's a testimonial in itself. But, like, everyone wants to spend more time in bed. And I imagine you're more relaxed as a result. And people, like, statistically are so chronically sleep-deprived that 
being able to squeeze out more of that without sacrificing your output throughout the day, well, if anything, improving your output because you've slept better and you're performing better, is a huge one. So I'll mention uh, we do biphasic sleep. So unfortunately, this isn't is this isn't engineering, and I usually I usually pride the website in that it really sticks to data. But um, biphasic sleep saves so much time that I've enacted it. Uh, so it's a set of polyphasic sleep. You sleep six hours at night, and then you take a 20-minute nap sometime during the day. Try to take it around the same time. So I'll sleep from midnight till 6 a.m., and then I'll take a 20-minute nap whenever I get home from work, and that's usually around like 4 or 5 p.m. Um, and I've been doing this for four years. My wife's been doing it with me for four years. We even had a kid, and she pretty much kept doing it. Um, so I highly recommend it. So it saves 12 hours a week. So you can almost imagine uh, how much more you get done if you had an extra almost two hours uh, a night that you could spend doing whatever. That is absolutely uh, huge. And so when you switch, because Johnny and I tried biphasic sleeping and I don't think we stuck with it long enough to adapt fully and yeah. to get into the flow of it. Um, so we we didn't really stick with it, but I'm so interested to hear like... Take you, or how long did you try it? Probably two weeks. Okay. I was going to say the first three weeks were pretty rough. Um, and I think even week three, I was about to give up. Um, but then work was just so busy that it was almost a necessity. If I didn't take the nap, uh, I was going to basically go to bed when I got home. Um, so it ended up kind of forcing me to wait the three weeks. And then after three weeks, it kind of just clicked. Um, so, you know, if you ever give it another try. So as far as so I guess you've got the extra two hours in the day now, any differences in how tired you feel, or how recovered you are or anything like that? Uh, you know, I've come to such like a, it's a normal state. Um, I think the things that really affect my amount of energy I have is like coffee. And if I'm working out, uh, when I'm in good workout routines, I feel like I have infinity energy. Uh, so I, I can't really complain about the sleep, um, you know, reducing that. I will say there are times that I'm sick or hungover or, uh, you know, sometimes I just feel like I need to sleep more, and I just do. I don't feel too bad about it because you're already saving 12 hours a week. If you sleep for an extra, you know, two to four hours a week, you still saved a bunch of time. It's still a net saving yeah. of time. But the way I, I consider just feeding the body, if I feel like I'm sore or something, I'll sleep extra. Okay. So, Michael, it sounds like you are a man who's got his priorities in order in the sense that you're like, I've optimized my job to enable me to get the most money per hour and therefore spend the most time with family, spend time doing things I enjoy, more time in bed. Um, and so in your case, like the philosophical prioritization side of it has kind of been covered for you. Um, but one of the most common criticisms that, that I hear, particularly for the things that I do on a micro optimization level. So things like Alfred for Mac, I'm obsessed with, I don't know if this is a bit of software that you use um it's like i a, don't oh, okay so it, it's like a um pro, uh, it, it's a program bar launcher that's kind of like a command line thing um that you can do a lot of tasks that would require multiple steps with two or three key presses so it's both keyboard shortcuts and short commands that you can type and um i use it i think about 350 times a day on average because it gives you some analytics save me a huge amount of time but saying that and the fact that i'm so enthusiastic about it some people are saying well is it just making you do the wrong things faster and i guess this is a something that needs to be addressed for 
all of these mi minor optimizations, which is, are we then just working more efficiently, but not more effectively, or not moving further towards our kind of larger scale goals? Right. To me, it seems like they're two separate disciplines, but I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. Yeah, and I, I, I think it should be treated as two separate disciplines because there's always this uh, ability to, say, innovate or eliminate uh, a task. I mean, eliminating a task is better than making uh, a task more efficient. So uh, total agreement on that. That is, like, the best way. Um, I would say this is maybe all part of the same industrial engineering. Say something is non-value-added. Um, you were talking about doing the wrong thing. Maybe uh, it's best to go through what your problems are and maybe write it down and root cause why you're doing that. Uh, a tool maybe to give you an idea on how to look at those things. If you ask the question why you're doing something or why something exists, um, you get an answer. So uh, why do we eat food? We need nutrition. Why do we need nutrition? Because if we don't, uh, we're going to feel terrible. Well, maybe this isn't that great because in the end you're going to need nutrition. Um, you know, you might get to this circle. But uh, really looking at why you do something may help innovate. So I would say innovating, maybe that's a lot harder. That could take more time, still might have some problems. I guess that's one, one way to do that. Um, but elimination of things, I would say that's all part of uh, efficiency as well. Right, okay. So so actually then it's it's a more fundamental thing that before starting to make any process more efficient, the first question should be, is this process necessary in my workflow? Will right. it bring me towards my greater goal? I like that, yep. Cool. Yeah, and so it's, it's, it's interesting to hear you say that, that it's like you should first be looking at whether I should say no to a task at all before looking to do it better. Um, yeah. What value does that task provide and then if you find it does provide value, then can you uh, maybe get more value per either time or per dollar that you spend on it? So what's, what's the best way to, um, when, when you write out a process, because for example, with the morning routine thing that you wrote out, it's so much more thorough than I would, than I would have thought to you know, expand out every step like that and look at the process from a real bird's eye view. Um, is there a way that you approach any system or process to do this yeah uh writing down every single step is is a real way that they look at these um and sure when you're when you're at an industrial engineering so the closest thing i had to this uh i worked in a plant and we would have these squares and the squares would be at each task and then you make an arrow that points to what it does next because in the plant uh there'll be multiple people doing multiple things um but in the end, even just writing everything down when you're doing something, um, another tool they use, um, they'll use like a camera and they'll just visually record. So then when you're all done doing the process, you can write down all the steps um, or have a partner write down all the steps because you might forget, you might not even realize you're doing something, uh, but a partner will realize, oh, you, you know, stepped backwards and you walked around the bathroom for a minute. Um, okay. So uh, writing down the process and then uh, the next thing is measuring the process. So if you want to get real nitty gritty, you can time. And they call this a time study. And with the time study, you can find out really what is what matters. Maybe you only spend uh, five seconds looking for clothes, so it doesn't really matter. Maybe you spend three minutes looking for clothes. So 
instead of spending a bunch of time moving stuff around your house, maybe come up with a better process for selecting clothes. So um, once you have, say, the times written down, things are considered, uh, well, it's repeatable. So things are repeatable. They're considered in control. Because um, you could theoretically graph all of this, and that's what they do in the plant. They graph all of this, and as long as the times are steady, they're in control. And then you can really make some uh, process improvements that are measurable. So that's kind of the uh, the more nitty-gritty how they engineer um, sort of a process optimization. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. So you're looking at the, the whole process, what each step takes in terms of time, and how that affects the the overall output and seeing at what point these can either be overlapped or eliminated. Hey, Johnny here. Just a really quick interruption to this episode to let you know about a resource we now have up and running on propinfitness.com. One of the most popular questions we get from readers and listeners is, hey guys, what would you recommend for my starting calories for fat loss and muscle gain? How much protein, carbs, fat? How many calories should I eat to begin my journey as a starting point? Normally, this is something that we do for clients when they come into our program, the Propane Protocol. But recently, we have opened up the calculator that we use for all of our clients so that you can get a free calculation, a free starting point of what we would recommend if you were to start as a client with us for your protein, carbs, fats, and calories overall for either fat loss or muscle gain, customized to you and your goal. If you want to get access to that, it is totally free. You just have to go to propanefitness.com forward slash calculator, enter your information, and we will send your macros and your calorie recommendations to that email address. And we'll also send you a few free resources over email just to pad that out and ensure that you have the best possible chances of reaching your goals in fat loss and muscle gain. Hope you enjoy the rest of this episode. Um, we have a large audience that are PTs or online coaches. So either looking to move online or currently are working online, maybe coaching 15, 20, 30 clients and are finding that they're not able to take on more clients without just cutting out more time from their day or sleeping an hour less. And we were absolutely in this position as well. So there is certainly a, a case of um, time optimization and some of the ways that, that we addressed that was realizing exactly as that kind of analysis pointed out that you're maybe writing out a training program for a client who is 30 year old male overweight looking to lose weight um and vegetarian and so you write out a program and then you have the next client which is 25 year old female looking to gain muscle so you write out a program there and then next time you have something that's a similar demographic but slightly different and you went you write a whole new program from scratch and maybe on that day you're feeling a bit forgetful or you've had um something going on that day that's made you a bit distracted and so you miss out a couple of the key details or whatever and so each time the quality control is completely off and it takes you so long to write a program each time and to deliver that and answer individual questions each like repeated questions that you're doing over and over again so applying the process that you've described I guess it's looking at what are the things that I do repeatedly that not only am I doing badly because of poor quality control tiredness sleep deprivation um being busy that day, but also what can I do to standardize the process to make the client experience as good as it can be? And I suppose that's similar to an industrial process, but it's just 
with a with a human at the other end of it. So for us, we we just created a gold standard template that we then used to adapt for new clients. And same with FAQs and questions. And if we were getting questions that were common, we would put them into a question bank and create the gold standard answer for that and create either autoresponders that dealt with the questions or um, included it within the core materials that the client would receive. Um, so have you got any thoughts on on how to optimize that for that kind of audience as well? Yeah, uh, yeah I'll share some thoughts on that. I also want to applaud you for saying the word quality. It might sound like a buzzword, but uh, quality is uh, sometimes measurable, I guess if you could measure it, is a good measurable metric, um, maybe for satisfaction, um, even something to determine what is the bare minimum, uh, what is the bare minimum quality you're allowed. Uh, in engineering, you optimize for all of that. You don't want to, we were talking kind of about over-processing, um, you don't want to spend too much effort on something that, say, doesn't needed as much and sure you want things to be say the highest quality um but maybe some things don't matter maybe uh i mentioned earlier your appearance maybe your appearance doesn't matter maybe you don't have to spend as long on it um but i think uh, i think that's interesting to think about there's some human things that make it difficult imagine you schedule someone someone shows up 15 minutes late uh, my wife has this problem with her practice people will cancel um i would say for a successful visit, there's probably one process you can follow, um, optimizing maybe which machines, or I, not that I use machines, but you know whatever you're training on, um, maybe you have a good process to make that go quicker. Um, you have a set uh, set uh, wait time between sets or something, something that you follow to the tooth, and you minimize uh, to the something like a wait time if you absolutely need to wait a few minutes between your set that's one story um but if they don't then you don't make more money by letting them just sit around so maybe that's something to look at but uh, all of this can be measured maybe it's best to do it with like a friend that is okay with you measuring this on them rather than like a, a client um but then you can kind of find where you're putting a lot of your time and making sure say you find out 50% of your time is value added where people are working out and then half the time isn't. Can you do anything with that time? Um, and then if, say a client cancels, um, maybe having a plan for when a client cancels, what are you gonna do with your time if a client cancels? Because I'll tell you that, um, say I have a meeting or something and someone cancels, I didn't have plans for that hour and uh, I could waste that, like we were talking about waste it on your phone uh, if you're not kind of careful so having a fallback having a process in place for when that happens um, that makes sense so having so, so i guess the the point the main points there are having a contingency for when things don't go to plan and making sure that if a client doesn't turn up or if a client's late on for example we we respond to um fitness and business clients on a friday when they report in but if they if they're late then that changes our workflow and it means that the time that we've allocated for them on the Friday has been lost. or So we then need to have a contingency plan that if we don't receive a report for them, we send them a reminder, but we have something to do during that time so that it's not it's not wasted time. So there's a contingency element. You've then talked about KPIs or having some kind of um, metric that you're using to say, is this process successful and is it profitable? And then also being able to 
identify which of the steps in either the product delivery or the marketing are the value adding steps and which brings a client into, which brings, for example, a lead into a client or a client into a um, retained long-term client. Yeah, what provides the satisfaction? Obviously, everyone wants results. Maybe people just want to feel good when they leave. Uh, and spending a few minutes just chatting with someone maybe makes a, a bigger difference than doing an extra set. Uh, That's so interesting. Okay, so so I guess being able to, I guess either on a human level or if it's if it's online and if it's on if it's at scale, being able to capture that in your process with maybe a feedback form or being able to get some analytics from your users that says what is the key thing that has caused them to subscribe or to stay with you or to return or to book a session or whatever and right. then figuring out how can i maximize that metric so not to go full skeptic on that uh but i bet you there's some psychology about how people will not answer truthfully they kind of have their own ideas what they think is wrong but they don't really share so there's there's even a little bit of skepticism when you add a, a human element to that so uh, but you know, you do the best you can with the data you have available. So do you think it's better to, let's say you're working with a client and they like, do you think it's better to just basically chat to them and try and try and get a, a more global idea of what it is that's caused them to stay with you rather than filtering it down to kind of something a bit more quantified? I would say take lots of data, you know, take a survey, talk to a person. Um, you can even kind of read body language, read between the lines when someone, like someone will send me an email and I can tell, like I've had people tell me, uh, I usually don't email people, um, which makes me think a lot of my users maybe don't uh, reach out to people who run websites. So uh, I don't feel too bad if I send an email and I don't get feedback. Uh, that was something where I thought, oh, maybe I offended this person. Well, probably it's just, you know, some of my audience doesn't like replying to emails or doesn't want to communicate or something. Um, and something like that, uh, you, you can't necessarily just get off of a survey um, because the people that answer the survey are a different type of person that, uh, you know, that you could be corresponding with. So I think, I think you can use process on a lot of things, um, but I definitely think that the human element of things can... Uh, is a is an area for variability so that that is interesting in itself that you've got people who wouldn't normally reach out to someone they wouldn't normally send an email <clears throat> and yet there's a different type of person that would fill in a survey or that would engage with an advert or something and we've certainly found that with marketing that when you have a facebook advert you will get high engagement from a certain demographic of audience but actually that demographic may not be the ones that would buy they're just the ones that are more likely to comment on a post. But the ones who buy could even be total lurkers. They could be really silent online. They don't like posts in general. They're not in the habit of, of being vocal online, but they just quietly buy stuff. And it's quite hard to then access those people besides having genuine content that resonates with your audience enough for them to physically reach out to you. As you said, that they'll send you an email and be like, hey, I don't normally do this, but here's this. So that's such an interesting point about when with your marketing or with your um, survey data to be aware that there will be a degree of sample selection, sample bias within that itself before anyone even starts the response. 
Yeah, uh, I guess my big takeaway there is uh, is respect the human element of things. Um, and then anything that's not human, then I'd like to just put process to and make efficient as can be. So the one of my concerns before speaking to you was like seeing the way that you split these things out. I thought this man is so metric based that actually he's going to be ignoring the human element of it and you know it and actually approaching a human or a service oriented business with an overly quantity over sort of overly metric based um, quantitative approach can end up either being a bit kind of um, it just misses out on a lot of the elements of it but it sounds like you're saying respect that element and then anything that can't be captured like that that's when you revert to the data and the same thing with realizing what processes need to be done overall having everything framed by the bigger goal of what do i want out of my process or what do i want out of my business and this is definitely something that we made as a mistake when we started propane which was we were thinking okay well we want to grow didn't really have any specific metrics there any kpis so we ended up just taking on more clients eventually like dropping our price to the point where it was absolutely loss making compared to if we were to spend the same number of hours just working in a starbucks but we didn't think about that we just thought oh how do we increase revenue which will increase revenue increase revenue whereas looking back that revenue per man hours was the key metric there because anyone can increase their revenue and at the same time their costs can go way up and those costs can be in time energy or money and so i think realizing or if you're going to optimize for a metric to make sure that that is definitely the right one and if you were to extrapolate and say what if this were to be at its maximum then what would happen to my life is is really important i I do have to comment i love that uh that way of thinking um being able to make a decision off the math uh, will validate an idea. I, I had uh, one of my wife's friends over and she was thinking about starting a yoga studio. And pretty much whenever someone tells me their business idea, I whip out Excel and I calculate to see if it's viable. And she was one of the first people that when I did her numbers, I was like, oh, you totally could make money doing this. Um, and I can't remember how much I calculated she'd make. I think like 60 grand a year uh, would be like her salary. And, you know, there's some crude numbers there. But the fact that she was profitable giving me the numbers uh, she was expecting, um, you know, that's a good sign. And uh, I guess the best way to describe that is, like, I guess that's rational decision-making, like using math to determine, uh, you were talking about uh, revenue per man hour, seeing if things are viable. Um, And, yeah, just whipping out Excel or Google Sheets and, you know, spending the 10 minutes to an hour putting all your numbers down and finding if something's going to work. Uh, I do that for everything from health insurance to food, um, just trying to you know make a good decision on what I'm going to buy. Huge return on investment, just spending those 10 minutes on Excel and um, figuring out, is there a return on this? So it, it looks You're like... wasting money. Yeah. Like, well, it looks like we've, just, we've kind of applied these principles to personal life, personal productivity, business, so both with marketing lead generation and service delivery and also something that you kind of just started touching on which is personal finance and so not only is a business viable but is a job viable or is a um something worth your time to either do yourself or to pay someone to do and 
this is something we tell a lot of the people who are PTs wanting to build out an online presence or build out a website. Like, don't try and learn web design yourself because you're gonna, it, it's such a separate skill that has no overlap with being a personal trainer that it's gonna take so much time away from doing your core activity and you'll end up doing it worse than if you just pay a guy to make a website for you or even better just use one of the thousands of standard templates that you can get online like there's so many now that no one's going to look at it and be like oh that's copied from this because th there's an abundance of of web templates available and so with that in mind like for example right now i've got someone cleaning my house um i've left the door open and i've just said guys let yourself in um clean the house because i know that I would take longer and I would do a worse job of cleaning my, my house than if I pay someone else to do it. And I'm a doctor, I'm not a good cleaner. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm an okay doctor, but I'm a terrible cleaner. So um, it's not where my skill set lies and it's not where I would add the most value in doing. Uh, I have a, a take on this. So I, I see where you're coming from because saving that time means you can put that time into other things. Um, I also have a contrary thought. So, um, you know, I, I say this as someone who has a full-time job. Well, I'm not necessarily allowed to work more than 40 hours a week. So it's not that I could, say, work a 41st hour, get paid a bunch of money, and then use that to pay for, uh, I'm going to just give you, use your example, um, clean the house. I can't pay someone extra, uh, whatever that extra hour was. So I have my set uh, income, and then I have my, uh, I'd say like bare minimum expenses and then anything in between that uh, is finite. There's only, you know, so much money, 40% of my income. So then you have to decide what you're going to spend that on. You can spend it on like you're doing saving time um, or maybe you want to spend it on your mortgage so you don't have to pay so much interest every month. Uh, but all different kind of ideas. Maybe the best thing to do is calculate uh, for your life what uh, – What's the best thing to take your money and spend it on? Oh, I 100% agree with that. And I, I don't think it's necessarily at odds with the idea of outsourcing things. But I think you're right. You need to have the clarity of, like, is this a worthwhile investment? Like, is the hourly rate that I'm paying the cleaner better than the hourly rate that I would earn myself? Or um, that I could, you know, fudge with enjoyment differences or how quickly I could clean the house relative to them and so on and there's a really interesting framework that I saw a while ago from I can't remember where it was it was a personal finance thing and they were talking about calculating first your true salary which is not the gross salary not the net salary after tax but the net salary after tax and after work related expenses so that includes anything like shirts that you have to wear for work laundry travel, uh, train tickets, um, anything else that's like a work-related cost. So then you've got your net, net salary. You then divide that by the total number of hours that you do, averaged out. Um, and it's not just your rotated hours. So it's not if, you, if you're rotated in to work as a 40-hour work week. It's, it's that plus your commute time, plus time getting ready for work, like all of the time that you would have spent that you wouldn't have spent if you weren't working that day, which suddenly becomes a lot more than a 10-hour day. It might become a 12-hour day because of all the extra stuff on either side of it. That is then your true hourly rate, and it's usually, like, pretty depressing. And so he says you then convert your true hourly rate into time um, every time you want to 
pay for something every time you want to buy uh, something. So if you want to buy a coffee, that's a um, six, let's say six dollars, and you say, okay, that's forty-five minutes of my true salaried man hours, and you're like, oh, actually, I don't think it's worth forty-five minutes. Like, oh. <laughs> and so you then make a much more informed decision as to whether something is worth buying or not based on a much truer reflection. And yes, it is, it is certainly depressing to do, but it's much more realistic. Yeah, I, I have to say, I love that uh, way of thinking. That's how I choose my jobs. Um, if a job, I had a job that was an hour away, but it paid $30,000 more than, uh, it was like 30 or $40,000 more than my current job. And even dry, even working, say, 50 hours a week, calling that that drive work, uh, it still made significantly more sense to, say, take the other job. Um, Most people would just so be like, I'm yep, a big fan. I'll take it. Yeah, I'm a big fan of, uh, of, you know, calculating all of that so you can make the best decision. And at least, uh, so in the United States, we have to care about health care and stuff. So you can, uh, health insurance. So you can actually calculate how much value uh, the health insurance a company provides versus if you use the, the government, like Obamacare website. Um, so you can say, well, this company is offering me health care. Well, that's worth $6,000. So you can sort of rationally compare, are these benefits really that good? Uh, you can add your 401k. That's our retirement plan uh, that sometimes employers match. You can put all that stuff in so you can really make a good decision. Um, I've had to turn down jobs because uh, they wanted me to take like a very big pay cut, even though on uh, they claim the benefits were really that great. You could actually calculate uh, that the benefits weren't that great. Um, but I guess that kind of is just more into that, you know, rational decision making. And I do like that you were able to convert that to time. I remember I, I was very uh, against buying fast food because if it cost me $6, this was back when I was working at a clothing store, it cost me $6 for the meal. Well, I only made $7 that hour, and that was before tax. So I worked a whole hour just to pay for, you know, a burger or something. And then there's the the other, like, if you were to really go, like, full clarity on this stuff like you've not only converted it to time but also like what is the value besides satisfying hunger that you're getting from that burger you're not getting much micronutrition from it is it moving you towards your physique goal maybe if you're bulking or if you're wanting to gain muscle but in most cases the like so another metric that i would like to use for example is and i've seen you've done something similar is either protein per grams of protein per penny which you can then it makes you look at fast food in a totally different way, and things like KFC then start bumping up the uh, um, up, up the the rank rather than other things, but also satiety value per um, per penny or per calorie, and I think satiety value per calorie the the satiety index is a great um, thing to use for this, which is a series of um, it was a study done with a series of foods where they used. 100 calories of white bread as the index so that was 100 and then what they would do is give people a certain standardized number of calories of a load of different foods and observe how much they ate throughout the rest of the day so trying to get a metric for how full it made them feel and how much it blunted their appetite for the rest of the day and so you've then got this scale of um, things on both ends of the spectrum and how satiating it is relative to white bread so i think from memory the um lowest thing on the satiety index was like 
a croissant or um, crisps or, or, or chips, as you call them in the States. And the mm-hmm. highest thing was boiled potato. And oh. what I find so interesting about that is that potato and chips and crisps are the same thing, but one of them is just in such a different form and it can actually be at the opposite end of the satiety spectrum. Um, so there's there's so many hacks like this that would improve someone's adherence to a diet or improve their success in the diet, such that um, last time I dieted down to sort of 7 or 8% body fat, I was very lean, um, but I was eating between 1 and 2 kilograms of cauliflower every day, um, which is probably insane to most people's uh, perspective, but actually... For me, it, it hit that KPI. It was maximum satiety um, and maximum volume with minimum calories. By the way, I'm super interested in this uh, satiety index because I think I've heard of it. I guess I just never heard, like knew that someone actually did it. So I'd be curious if I could look at, uh, say, that per dollar um, and seeing if there's any sort of value in, say, what foods are uh, cheapest and very filling. Well, I've, um, so I've published something in the British Association of Sports and Exercise Medicine about this, so I can send you the, uh, the link to it if you're interested. Yeah, uh, for sure. Cool. So, um, Michael, th- this has been an absolute whirlwind of a conversation because we've, we've gone through like how to apply these principles across so much in life, and hopefully anyone listening is now, if they were first sceptical, they're now convinced of the, the far-reaching benefits of approaching your life in this way. Well, uh, if we have a little bit more time, I can list out some tips that uh, may instantly save some time. Oh, let's do it. Okay. Uh, so we talked about shoes per hour, uh, and that's where we talked about the, the shoehorn. So I highly recommend that. Um, we maybe touched on protein per second a little bit, but really it's just that some like uh, protein does expire. It kind of often requires cooking. Uh, so I, I kind of looked into that. Um, and things like milk... Um, you know, beef jerky may be expensive, but it's, you know, ready protein. Um, and then if you have to cook food, putting, say, a lid on whatever you're cooking, um, that'll keep the heat inside. So just a little simple, like, thermodynamic trick, but it'll make, say, water boil quicker. It'll make food cook quicker. So that increases your protein per second. Um, uh, watching videos faster on uh, Netflix or YouTube. So I don't know if you have ever sped up a video on YouTube. Uh, but it, you know, you can watch say an hour video, uh, 10% faster in 54 minutes. Man, so th- this is another thing that makes me think we we are brothers from another mother here. Like I, I saw you recommended video speed controller, Chrome extension. Yeah. I'm yeah. It's my favorite thing. I, like I I've love it. Uh, um, I've, I think 1.3 times speed. Okay. See, I've it, for certain material, I think it depends on the material. Like for some, if it's very simple content, you can push it up to like three times. I think any further, any faster than that, it goes a bit garbled. Oh but, yeah. But for dense content, sometimes maybe even one point five or two is is a bit too fast to be able to fully process. Yeah, I mean, we'll do one point three times speed on like entertainment. We're just trying to enjoy. Uh, but as <laughs> yeah, far as like lectures and like... stuff, I'll blow through it. Yeah, like three times speed. Um. Uh, some other tips, uh, water per second. So kind of like a simple trick. So instead of drinking out of like a small glass cup, um, which may only be like six or eight ounces of water, uh, I have a one gallon water bottle um, and it's non-trivial. You'll save like, uh, let me let me get the right number. I think it's 
thousands of hours. Um, yeah. Okay. So compared, so this bottle compared to a uh, six ounce cup uh, will save you one thousand five hundred hours in your lifetime, and that might sound like kind of crazy, but humans actually have been dealing with water as like a problem and like transporting it forever. So uh, the fact that we have it in our own lives today actually isn't that surprising. Um, oh, uh, air proofing your home. So I talked about like checklists. I think that's like a really powerful tool. Um, but also for our shower, um, my wife likes it at a very certain temperature. So we found out what the temperature was and then we bought a shower crayon and just marked on the shower, uh, like how far over to uh, push the handle. And that's really nice because it works every time. Um, so you don't have to, you know, mess with that. Uh, you don't have to test it. You just can go right in the water. Nice. Um, oh, I, so uh, I'm not sure how you feel about uh, eating twice a day. So people call this intermittent fasting. Um, but that potentially could save time if you're only using, uh, you know, two bowls a day instead of three bowls a day uh, in so, similar principles. So actually, Michael, yeah, the the I mean, this probably fits into one of your seven forms of waste. But I guess with that, you've got the washing up time of, of doing washing up three bowls rather than two, but also the, the switching time. Like, and I think this is most evident when you're working, <clears throat> say on a laptop, you're doing something and then you get a text message and then you switch and you start responding to the message and then you get like distracted by something else on your phone and then you spend five minutes doing that and then you switch back to the work and you still need another five minutes to either to get some of that attention residue off your phone and back onto the work and also to just get back into the groove of what you're doing and that multiplied by the number of distractions over one hour just completely tanks your uh, productivity and it's probably the same with eating that like if you're having to eat six meals a day each one pulls you out of your flow to the point where it, the total output for the day is just completely tanked. Right. I mean, I'm a big fan of taking breaks, um, but when you have to do things just to satisfy your body, uh, you know, that, that definitely takes you out of that zone. But, by the way, so those are pretty much what I have. I mean, there's more on the website. Um, we didn't really talk about money savings, but those are actually my most popular articles. Um, but yeah, those are all on the website as well. Oh, cool. Yeah, we'll include the link for that. So so I suppose the things people can take away right now is get a big bottle of water, cook with a lid, um, use, a, use a microwave, um, mark the, uh, the temperature that you have on a shower and, uh, and look at the key metrics that you, um, that you want to optimize for within your process. Look at the non-value adding steps within your process have a contingency plan for anything that's um, like for if something doesn't go to plan so that you're not sat twiddling your thumbs. And uh, I think is, is that pretty much it? Uh, I mean, there's kind of always more in industrial <laughs> engineering. Uh, you know, I could talk about spaghetti diagrams. Uh, all right, I'll drop one more thing. All right, oh, yeah. a spaghetti diagram. So uh, imagine you have a blank piece of paper and you draw, say, the shape of your house. And you want to see how you make the trip from your bed to the door to leave. Um, well, you put your pen down where you start on the bed and you don't lift that pen up until you have left the house. So you kind of go through your process, drawing it down. And any point that you've 
uh, pushed your pen back and forth, so you have lines that are overlapping, those are uh, visually showing you waste. So, uh, you know, just another tool if you're trying to eliminate transportation. Waste. That is cool. Cause it, so especially with shopping, like, because, I mean, the standard thing in a grocery store, isn't it? It's like people go, um, like, zigzagging through the, the store, but then they might go back and forth to different places. And this is one of the key reasons that I shop online, because I am so susceptible to just impulse buying rubbish food by being in the shop. And you see, I get such FOMO with food, like fear of missing out. And I'll, whereas if you're doing it online, you know what you need. You can even repeat the, the order from the previous time without having to look at anything. And it avoids both the the time wasted in the shop and waiting in the queue and all that stuff, but also the temptation of buying things that are not necessary. Yeah, uh, when you save time, you're spending less time thinking about whatever you're you know doing there. So even more benefits. So, Michael, this has been a, a like not only a very practical podcast, but also a bit of a philosophical reboot as well. And it's, it's awesome to see um, something that was mentioned in a podcast last week was a guy called Chris Sparks from uh, what's his uh, what's his website called the forcing function. Um, and he talks about at the end, he's a pro poker player and talks at the says at the end of the year, he looks at all of his processes, all of his habits, relationships, um, things that he's spending time, energy and money on and says, I get two choices with any of these now. I can either cut it out of my life or double down on it. And there's no in-between. And so every year he ends up getting closer and closer to this kind of optimised point. The idea of that scares me, and I don't think everything can be doubled or nothing, but um, the principle is great, and it, it really does like force you to kind of pick something up, examine it, and say, should I throw this out, or should I... Um, really double in on this thing. Yeah, I have to say, I think that's very interesting. If you like something, why not double it? Uh, I mean, I can see how scaling it doesn't always work, but I definitely find that's an interesting way to do things. For sure. So, Michael, thank you for your time with this. I think this has been hugely valuable. And uh, can you tell us how we can get in touch with you, how we can find out more about your, your content? Yeah. Uh, efficiency is everything, uh, dot com. Uh, even if you just try to Google that, um, it'll get you there. Uh, and then my most popular article, even though it's a bit outdated is my calorie per dollar. If you Google that, um, you know, I got a bunch of different nutrients per dollar, protein per dollar, uh, and for all the restaurants too, at least in the U S um, everything, McDonald's, Taco Bell, KFC, all of that, the protein per dollar, um, so yeah, if you remember any of that and you Google it, you'll get to the website and, uh, yeah, if you want to talk to me, my contact info's on the page. Awesome. We will include all of this in the description on uh, Spotify, iTunes, YouTube, so you can check it out on there if you're listening and well, and if you're listening in the car, because that is another way to double down on your, uh, your wasted time, um, not double down rather <laughs> on how to save on the, the wasted dead time from driving. Cool. Michael, it's been a pleasure. I'll speak to you soon. Thank you so much for having me. Hey, Johnny again. Hope you enjoyed that episode of the Propin Fitness Podcast. We have a short request and a potential prize for you. If you enjoyed that episode, 
we'd love it if you could leave us a review on iTunes. It just helps the podcast reach more people and allows us to devote more resources and time to making this podcast better every single week. In return, we are going to be selecting one of the reviews, announcing it live on the podcast every single week, and sending you two of our programs completely free of charge, both Faster Fat Loss and the V-Taper program. One is obviously a fat loss program, eight weeks long. One is the V-Taper program, which is muscle gain focused on the upper body, designed to basically get you a massive bench press, huge chest, and a massive chin-up. Who doesn't want those things? So we're going to be sending both of those to the best review. And all you have to do in order to enter this prize draw to win those two programs is to head over to iTunes or head over to propanefitness.com to get the link for the podcast and then visit iTunes that way and leave us a short review with your honest feedback, your honest comments. Let us know what you think of the podcast, what we can do better, what you like, what you don't like, and you'll be automatically entered into the prize draw to win one of these programs. We'll see you on the next episode and we hope to be shouting your name out very soon. Shout, shout, shout.